0: Welcome to Almost Here, around the corner of future technology podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner. From Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending where you are in the world. This is Tracy Murda on behalf of Richard Jacobs here at Future Tech Podcast. Today I have an incredibly esteemed guest, uh, Earl Campbell, the theoretical physicist at the University of Sheffield. Thank you so much for joining me, Earl. I really appreciate your time today.
0: Thank you, Tracy. Good to be here.
1: So I'm going to pick your brain from a layman's perspective here on quantum computing. There's obviously a lot to talk about, so... Let's jump in, and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in quantum computing.
0: I've been working on quantum computing from an academic perspective for just over 10 years now. So I'm someone that's always been deeply fascinated by physics and mathematics and computing and all of these kinds of topics uh, that kind of give us more understanding about how the world works at its most fundamental level, but I also feel like I don't want to just be one of these academic satin and I retire. I want to kind of uh, contribute something towards society and the economy and so on and so forth in a very concrete way. And around the time when I was finishing my undergraduate, I was looking at different PhD programs that I might go into. And uh, one other one that wasn't quantum computing I considered was, for example, working on fusion. Um, but a PhD position came up on quantum computing and I was very interested in doing something along those lines because my favorite topic from my uh, degree days was quantum physics. So that's how I got started in quantum computing through a kind of PhD program and then uh, various places at different universities.
1: So in the most basic way that you can describe, what actually is quantum computing?
0: So quantum computing is a kind of new approach to computing where instead of working with bits of data, you instead work with quantum particles or quantum uh, electrons of atoms and photons that are the kind of fundamental building blocks of the world. And when you work with nature on this level, what you find is that it obeys different laws that are unfamiliar to the everyday laws of physics that we know. So, quantum particles can exhibit properties known as superposition and entanglement. And you can use these properties of quantum systems in order to perform computations that are impossible for a traditional computing device.
1: Tell me a little bit about your work at Sheffield on quantum computing.
0: So to explain my work on quantum computing, maybe I should say a bit more about quantum computing and the obstacles that it faces. So two of the main challenges that we face in building quantum computers are scalability and noise. So what I work on is thinking about the architectures of how you might build or design quantum computers in the best way to address these problems of um, scale and noise. So let's say a little bit about scale first. So all computing devices store bits of data, usually as something like an electronic voltage or a pulse. And quantum computers use the basic building blocks in the universe. So they could be individual electrons or ions or photons or particles of light. And the quantum version of a bit in one of these devices is uh, called a qubit. So right now, the world record for controlling quantum bits of data for these qubits is around 14 qubits although IBM, for example, have a much more reliable device that works with five qubits which you can access online via quantum experience and kind of run a quantum algorithm on the cloud. But these are very small-scale devices and aren't, they're not useful in the sense that they're not going to solve any problems that you couldn't solve on your laptop. They're just kind of prototypes at the moment. So for commercial applications, what we want is many, many, many more qubits But there are various engineering and design obstacles that you have to overcome in order to get past these prototype scales that we're working at at the moment. So I kind of think about how we uh, will overcome this scaling problem. So another thing uh, that we have to deal with in quantum computers is noise. So unlike your laptop, noise is a serious issue for quantum computers. So your laptop, your laptop CPU for example, will essentially never, ever, ever make a mistake. I think that it's estimated about once a month a cosmic ray might come from outer space, penetrate into your CPU and knock a, a few electrons out of place and flip a bit in your... CPU, so create some kind of error that happens and maybe your computer will crash or maybe it won't, maybe um, you'll just lose a file or something. Uh, But when we store information on the scale of electrons and photons and so on and so forth, any kind of interaction with their environment can cause the data to be lost, so even the smallest interaction. So what we're trying to do is to store these tiny objects, these qubits, made of um, electrons, ions, or photons, or whatever hardware you're working with, in their own little world that's isolated from everything else around them. So this is doubly difficult, because you don't just want to store the data, you want to perform computations. And so what you have to be able to do is turn on interactions on and off. So you require experiments that have to have kind of exquisite level of control within this quantum realm, but this is, to all intents and purposes, completely impossible. We're never, ever going to have perfect control. So there's much, much more noise in these devices than in your laptop. So this noise problem is one of the main things that I work on. Uh, so my specific topic of interest is called fault quantum computing or quantum error correction, where I try to come up with methods for reducing this noise on a kind of software level. So my group and others around the world try to come up with software solutions to this noise issue. And as it turns out, we can fight noise using a quantum form of um, error correction. So if uh, if you've ever had a CD player, you'll know that a CD can take a lot of scratches before it won't work. And those scratches, they really are destroying data on your CD, but the CD has data duplicated all across it. So it can tolerate a small amount of damage. Uh, Similar but quantum versions of these ideas can be used to protect quantum computers against noise. And because noise is so prevalent, um, it's really important to be doing this quantum error correction. So the first notions of quantum error correction were established back in the 90s before I worked in the field. But now we're coming up with new and different ways to do this that are more efficient and put fewer demands on the hardware. Uh,
1: I was just curious if you could tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're working on as
0: well. Yeah, so I work on coming up with these new ideas for uh, quantum error correction and how to perform computation inside quantum computers. So, as I said earlier, I work on quantum error correction and fault tolerance theory, this kind of family of ideas of how we can perform uh, quantum computing, even when there's noise in our system. And there are many different, what you might call, quantum codes and protocols but they all have different levels of uh, ability to correct for errors. So the earliest ideas of codes were codes were developed um, mid-last century. They were called Reed-Muller codes and they were used, for example, to transmit data to the Voyager probe because the Voyager probe is still out there in space. We're still using those codes. But by modern standards, those are very inefficient codes. So. If you use your mobile phone to call someone, or you use your laptop to connect to the Wi-Fi network, then there's some danger that the Wi-Fi signals will also get um, affected by kind of ambient electromagnetic noise. And so, these devices nowadays use things called uh, LVPC codes. Now, that's just a technical term, but I just want to highlight that the kind of software and technology has moved on quite a long time. So what we're looking at nowadays are new ideas for these codes that are developments past what we had, say, in the 1990s and early noughties that proved to be more efficient. So you can get more computing power using the same amount of hardware. And this proves to be very important because, as I said, at the moment we're only st- we only have, say, five or ten cubic devices So, it's going to be a long time before we have, say, devices that have thousands or millions or billions of qubits. You want to get the maximum computing power for whatever you have in terms of hardware. So, it's really important how efficient this process of quantum error correction is. And that's what I work on.
1: So, what is Sheffield doing to sort of advance this area of technology?
0: So there are several different activities in Sheffield. In addition to um, what I mainly focus on, there's also a large experimental group that look at semiconductor hardware for quantum technologies. And in particular, they have the UK Centre for uh, what's called 3-5 Semiconductor Growth. So in addition to that large experimental group, there's also a theory group which includes myself, Peter Koch, and David Whitaker, and uh, various PhD students and postdocs that look at theoretical aspects of uh, how you can best design these quantum technologies. So each one of us has a kind of different focus. Peter Koch works on um, quantum communication, quantum metrology, so are other quantum technologies other than quantum computing, um, whereas I'm the kind of resident expert on quantum computing theory and quantum error correction, so a lot of the projects that I work on with my group are um, kind of you might think of them as software development that's relevant to quantum computing. So,
1: well, how complicated is this technology
0: actually? Very. So. If we imagine a scale of different levels of complicated technology, on one end of the scale you might have things like a mission to Mars or building a fusion reactor or things that we've thought about doing for quite a long time, but we know are extremely complex and difficult tasks. And on the other end of the spectrum, you might have something like making a new app for a phone which involves very little um, kind of technological innovation just kind of you know using existing software platforms that are out there and writing some new code and on that kind of very extreme scale, it's probably closer towards the um, fusion reactor, man on the moon, man on Mars kind of uh, projects that we have to tackle. Probably, I would say, slightly easier. So maybe I can explain a bit of the reasoning behind why I would describe it as. Uh, yes,
1: please do. <laughs>
0: much more ambitious than most of the other technologies. In particular, I've I've looked throughout and listened to some of the podcasts that this program puts out, and I would say that it's probably much more complex technology than almost anything else that you've uh, interviewed anyone about. So one of the reasons why it's so complex is because you're trying to precisely control the world on on the level of individual atoms and electrons and particles of light, so that kind of scale of nature. Now when you talk about the fundamental building blocks of the world, lots of people's mind immediately goes to these large super colliders like the LHC. So the um, institute that recently discovered the Higgs boson. So in a sense this is kind of a similar regime that we're probing because we're both looking at quantum physics and phenomena in quantum physics and quantum particles and so on. But there's one really big difference which is that the LHC is taking particles, spinning them around at high velocities, colliding them together, and then looking at the resulting explosion. It's often said that in these experiments, what they're seeing is uh, the nature of quantum physics to an unprecedented level of precision. So this is kind of the most well, um, most precisely quantified theory that mankind has ever had. And uh, these devices, like these colliders, have at places like CERN are giving, us these, are giving us these results, but the big difference between something like a collider and a quantum computer is that these collision processes are completely uncontrolled. You're just basically, it's like driving two cars to crash into each other and then just looking at the debris and then trying to figure out how the cars were built in the first place, whereas what we're trying to do is trying to control the exact state of these quantum particles, so we're trying to do something very, very ambitious.
1: So, dare I even ask, what, <laughs> how, where do you see quantum computing technology going? What are your expectations for the future?
0: certainly it's complex and the, the time scales and the level of uh, work and investment to, to take it forward are on a much greater scale than many other technologies that we develop but we do see a lot of progress so many things that when I was a PhD student ten years ago I would have thought were very very far from our reach we're now able to do so My expectation is that hopefully I'll see a quantum computer certainly within my lifetime and maybe even 10, 20 years, but I don't like to put a number on it exactly. So maybe I should say a little bit about the progress that there has been in in the last 10 or so years. Sure. So, I describe this problem of noise that occurs because parts of quantum computers interact with environments. Now, 10 years ago, we were able to, for example, take a single ion and hold it within something called an ion trap and shine lasers on it to control the exact quantum state of this particle. And what we saw was that maybe one in 10 times that we did this, something went wrong. And this is almost completely useless. And now, what we're seeing in the last year or two, particularly at the group in Oxford and other groups around the world, are also in a similar regime, is the ability to control a single ion, such that only about, say, one in a thousand times that you try to do something with this ion does something go wrong. And this is just a number, maybe to your audience, but it's a very important number because it's below something that we call the error correction threshold. So we have a a number, the best number we have at the moment for that is 1%. So if you're below 1% of noise, and we're at 0.1% at the moment, that means that you can use these ideas that I've alluded to about quantum error correction. It means that you're in the regime where everything that I've been talking about is, is feasible and you really need to work on scaling up. So in the last 10 years, we've gone from being a whole factor of 10 above the benchmark that we need to get below in order for quantum computing to be feasible and now we're a whole factor 10 below. There has been a huge amount of progress in terms of the level at which we're able to control individual atoms and electrons. And now really we're starting to turn our focus towards taking these small scale prototypes which are sufficiently precisely controllable and just taking that and scaling it up to a much, much larger device, although that is also challenging.
1: So, Earl, what are some of the the biggest challenges when it comes to quantum computing technology?
0: So, broadly speaking, two of the biggest challenges are noise and scalability, Uh, but they're also engineering problems that are specific to different technological platforms, so. <clears throat> but these tend to be different depending on what kinds of hardware you're building your quantum computer with. So I mentioned ion traps, and there are also superconducting qubits. People try to build quantum computers using just light, and each one of these technologies often faces its own difficulties. For instance, superconducting qubits, which are um, being pursued by Google, Microsoft, Intel, many of the large tech companies are investing in so-called superconducting qubits. And in a superconducting qubit, they have a chip where the qubits actually live, made out of uh, superconducting material and other materials. And at the moment... One of the engineering problems that they're facing is that they can put these qubits in a line, but they need to be able to control these qubits. In order to control them, they have a lot of control wires and probes and resonators and various things coming in from all kinds of angles. At the moment, they come in from the bottom and from both the sides. What they really need in order to build a quantum computer is a 2D array of these. And it's kind of just a weird geometrical problem that they If they have a 2D array, the ones in the middle of the array, you can't get to them with wires from the side anymore. So that's the kind of engineering problem that they're facing in superconducting qubits at the moment. That's one of the big obstacles they have, along with um, trying to get more precise measurements of their system. Many groups are also pursuing an approach using either just light or things like trapped ions, but where light is mediating interactions between the ions, so doing the kind of um, job of computation between different ions. And whenever you're using light, one of the issues that you have is that the bits of light have to be completely indistinguishable. So, individual atoms and ions and electrons are always indistinguishable, but Packets of light can be different, they can be different frequencies, and they can come in different shapes, and they can come in different sizes. We have to finally tune our apparatus that every single time it emits one of these photons, which is an individual packet of light, every time it does it, they're always identical. And different components of the device have to be tuned in such a way that they're all emitting photons in exactly the same way. This is again a very sophisticated engineering problem, but there's been a lot of progress the last 10, 20 years.
1: Can you tell me a little bit more about, you mentioned the qubits? The yes. what, what are the qubits, and what's this about the, the parallel
0: universes? There are two possible answers, I guess, to that. So there's the, the, And I'll try to give both of them. So uh, in one sense, what is a qubit depends on what the hardware is. So you could be using electrons, or ions, or photons, in which case the qubit, in some sense, is one of these things. The qubit is a piece of information inside the electron, or the piece of information inside the photon. So for contrast, imagine your laptop, or some other device that you have. You think of having a bit, and the bit is really not a physical thing, but a piece of information, and you say that the bit is one if there is a voltage somewhere, and zero if there isn't a voltage. Equally, you could say that a bit is one if I'm wearing a hat, and a bit is zero if I'm not wearing a hat. Or a bit is one if um, I've got red socks on, or a a bit is zero if I've got blue socks on. So anything in the world can be used to represent information. So in the same way, with quantum bits, any Think that sufficiently small or any system where quantum physics is sufficiently pronounced can be used to manifest a qubit. That still maybe doesn't tell you what a qubit is, so I'll try and say a bit more about that. So, a qubit is the smallest possible piece of information you have in quantum theory. So, it's it's like a bit because you have a notion of a zero and a notion of a one, but you also have other possible arrangements for the information. It can be in what's called a superposition of zero and one, a superposition of what we call the state zero and the state one. So when a qubit's in a superposition, if I come along and I measure it and I ask, I'm demanding that you tell me, are you in state zero or are you in state one? The qubit will always respond either saying zero or one, and it will do so with some probability. So in a way, you can think that a superposition is like being in zero or one with different probabilities, but there's some extra information there which isn't just the probability, which we call the phase information. And this links to what you were alluding to when you mentioned parallel universes, I think was the term you used.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So phase is important because it tells us how probabilities combine. So if I take two different events and I kind of combine them together, then if they're in phase, then the probabilities will add together in some sense. But say if you take two different things that are out of phase, then even though there's some probability of both of them happening, then when you ask about the combined event, then actually these probabilities cancel out. So this links to something called the wave-particle duality of nature, the idea that quantum physics is telling us that things can behave like waves and particles at the same time. And so when you look at the ripples of waves inside a pool or a lake, then what you see is that if you drop two stones at two different places, then ripples will emerge from both of them. But when the waves start to overlap, sometimes if both the waves are pushing up, then you get a really high peak. But if one of the waves pushes up and one of them pushes down, and the water's completely flat. And you can see places where the water's completely flat, even though there are two waves traveling through it. And that's a very accurate analogy for what's happening in, in a qubit. So you have the probability is, in some sense, the height of the wave, but then the phase is whether it's currently up or currently going down. So you, you have this kind of interference phenomena, we call it. And it's precisely this interference phenomena that gets used inside a quantum computer to try and add up all of the different probabilities converging on the correct answer to some computational problem. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely have to listen to this again and break it down (laughs) for my layman self. But, yeah, I mean, it, it really gives, I think, or someone like myself who's not, you know, developed into this industry that kind of helps break it down a little bit. So tell me about the basics in terms of what exactly are quantum computers good at? What are we hoping to accomplish here and what is the advantage then over the conventional computers?
0: So an important thing to realize about quantum computers is that they're not simply faster. In fact, you might have a quantum computer that has a slower co- clock speed than a traditional computer, but it might solve a computational problem faster. So the point is that you have these these qubits, and when you perform computation on them, the logic that you perform isn't like the sim inside your laptop or traditional computing device, You have these transistors, and they're effectively performing a sequence of little gates and gates or gates. And the logic that you have available to you when you have a quantum bit rather than a qubit can move through these different superpositions of states. There's a more kind of complex landscape of possible states of the computer, possible arrangements of information inside the computer. And in a sense, this allows you to take a shortcut, for certain computational problems, and for those problems where all of the amplitudes add up so that you end up outputting an answer to the computation which is the correct answer, then what you can find is that the number of computational steps that you have to perform scales much more slowly. So I should explain what I mean by scales. So you might have noticed maybe that if you have a computer that is meant to be, maybe you bought a computer that was one gigahertz, and then a few years later maybe you bought a computer that was two gigahertz, and you might expect that it runs twice as quickly. For some things that you ask a computer to do, it will be able to solve problems that are twice as large. But for certain classes of problem, if you double the size of the problem, you actually square, for example, the amount of time that it would take to solve it. So Maybe it takes 10 days to solve one particular problem. You double the size of it, and it no longer takes 10 days, but 1,000 days. And then you double the problem again, and now it takes 100,000 days. So for those classes of problem, what we're seeing is that the cost of a traditional approach is exponential in the size of the problem. Whereas for quantum algorithms that offer you a speed up, what you see is only a polynomial cost, so a linear cost. So every time you double the problem, it only takes you twice as much time. So this means that even if you take a quantum computer that has a slower clock speed and a smaller number of fewer qubits than another computer has traditional bits, then for the problems that quantum computers are good at, uh, if you go to a large enough problem, then you'll see a huge, huge up, In fact, there are some problems where if you go to a larger the problem for a traditional computer, you just know that it's going to take you the age of the universe to solve. So the one example that often gets used is Shaw's algorithm. So this was an algorithm, um, one of the first quantum algorithms that really kick-started the whole field. So Shaw's algorithm does something very technical. It takes a number and it finds out uh, if it has two factors that are both prime numbers. What's important about Shor's algorithm is that this idea of factorizing numbers crops up in something called RSA. So RSA is the cryptographic protocol that is most commonly used, uh, for example, on the Internet. So defense companies, for example, would be very interested in having a quantum computer because it would mean that they could crack all of these things that were encrypted using RSA. But there are other applications as well. For example, even long before Shor's algorithm, uh, Richard Feynman conjectured that quantum computers would be very useful for solving problems in chemistry and biology and various, various, various branches of science. And indeed, this is probably the area where we're gonna see impact long before Shor's algorithm is applicable. So the reason why quantum computers work well there is simply that what you're asking is a question like, "How does this collection of molecules bond together?" And this collection of molecules is a quantum system. It is something where quantum mechanics is the the dominant, the main the main things that are governing the system are quantum mechanical laws. And so, when you simulate it with a quantum computer, you're simulating something that's very similar to it. It's like using like with like, simulating like with like. Whereas a traditional computer, you would require a very, very, very large computer, a very, very large and a very, very fast computer to solve some of these um, chemistry and biological problems. So this is an area called quantum simulation. And that's one of the areas where you see a large, as we would say, exponential speed speed up over traditional computers? (laughs) Maybe I should say Uh, even a uh, little bit more
1: about Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Maybe i say a
0: little bit more about the limits that traditional computers are facing at the moment. So you might have noticed that the last few times you bought a phone or a laptop, the advertised number of gigahertz of the processor hasn't really changed. Whereas I remember in the 90s, every time I bought a a desktop, literally a week after it arrived, it seemed like some new desktop was released that cost the same amount of money but had more gigahertz, a faster processor. But we're already seeing that traditional computers are plateauing in terms of processor clock speed. You do see higher specifications advertised for computers, but often in terms of the processor, what you're seeing is maybe a quad core instead of a dual core, so more processors. What this means is that your computer will be better at juggling many tasks. You can have more applications open at the same time. It's much easier for your computer to, for you to read your email and have your Facebook open, and also be uh, doing 20 other, other things in the background at the same time. But for many things that are very crucially important in science and technology, you need your computer to be very single-minded in its focus. Really what you want is just a single processor that's very, very, very fast. And essentially at the moment we're seeing no progress on that front from traditional computing. So If you want to solve some of these problems in chemistry and biology, then there is no progress towards solving them from a traditional approach, so quantum computing is really aiming towards uh, breaking that barrier.
1: What industry specifically, you've already touched on quite a few, but what industry specifically do you think is going to benefit the most from quantum computing here in the future?
0: I guess the first sector that will see an impact will be the high performance computing market. Mm -hmm. That's where you'll you'll first see the impact. the way in which you use a quantum computer will likely be different. It will likely be over the cloud because it will be a large computer possibly held in a dilution fridge. So you'll probably access it over, your, over, um, over the Internet. That's just the first application really. And then, as I mentioned, there's uh, various problems in chemistry and uh, um, pharmacology and defense. So lots and lots of different sectors. But for me personally, I think that the really exciting thing about quantum computers is that they don't have a single area of impact. And in the areas where they will have significant impact, for instance, the, the sciences, what will happen is there will be secondary consequences. So when you give someone a quantum computer, that will allow them to solve very complex problems that they've been trying to solve maybe for decades and haven't been able to make any progress on. And when they are able to solve these problems, it's very unpredictable to know the extent of the consequences that we're going to see. So one of the major problems that the world is facing at the moment is the amount of energy that we use in fixing nitrogen. So the whole of agriculture revolves around fertilizers that uh, that use a nitrogen-fixing process and we use something like two to five percent, I think, of the world's energy is used in actually this nitrogen-fixing process in order to provide the fertilizers that we use um, in agriculture. But bacteria also has a nitrogen-fixing mechanism and it's much, much more efficient than the one that we currently use in industry. So it would be good if we understood how bacteria did this, but the process, all we know so far, is that the process which is going on inside bacteria is one of the processes that is completely out of reach of the capabilities of traditional computers to model. So one of the many, many, many hopes is that we could, for example, better model what's going on in these bacteria, learn something about that process, Design better and more efficient nitrogen-fixing processes, and reduce, get, eliminate this two to five percent of the global energy usage that we currently have. That's just that's just one um, example that many people like because it has a potentially huge impact. But it's almost impossible to list them all.
1: Right, absolutely. You just mentioned something that kind of piqued my interest as well when you were talking about, you know, where the the quantum computer would be held and things like that. So just for some of our listeners who, like myself, are still trying to wrap our head around this, how would you describe both, I guess, what's inside a quantum computer and what it would physically appear like on the
0: outside? Well, that's an excellent question because, when we're working with quantum computers, we often think about dealing with things that are very, very small. But it's possible that a quantum computer would actually be very, very large. Mm -hmm. I mentioned superconducting qubits. So uh, I'm at a conference at the moment in Seattle, and there was uh, Intel had a stall here, and they had a little kind of example of their superconducting chip on the counter. And it was probably about a centimeter square, uh, so one centimeter by one centimeter of actual superconducting chip. But then that was held inside a platform that was maybe uh, an inch by an inch, but that chip then would be surrounded by control technology in a dilution fridge. So it would probably be uh, including all of the support equipment in a room that is at least three or four meters by three or four meters. What's going on here is that the superconducting chip, to be superconducting, so it's important that the material is a superconducting material, but in order for the material to superconduct, it has to be held at low temperature. So you have to have a refrigerator that goes down to these temperatures, and these are, dilution refrigerators are very, very large, so they're, I think, about uh, almost a meter tall by about half a meter diameter so this tiny little chip would be sat inside that dilution fridge and then at the top of the dilution fridge you'll have lots of cables and these will have to run off to of various devices that are pumping in microwave signals and all other kinds of signals and controls and um, pulses and so on and so forth so uh, the actual the actual quantum magic if you like is a very very tiny thing that you can't see because it's surrounded by all of this equipment part of the reason but all of this equipment being so large and bulky is that a lot of these experiments are still taking place in universities, and we're really having to design the tools that we need to do the job. So the things that you need to build a quantum computer aren't in common supply, so you kind of have to custom build your equipment if you like. You would like it to be smaller maybe, and what we're seeing at the moment we're kind of entering a new phase of developing quantum computers where people are aware that they need to be making components that are smaller and cheaper in order to build a large-scale quantum computer. So a lot of the focus now is on reducing the size and the cost of all of this periphery stuff that surrounds the small quantum chair. So you also have um, trapped ions and photonic approaches to computers and other approaches. But often in all of these cases what you see is that the actual quantum part is very, very small. So in an ion trap, there are several different designs, but what an ion trap does is it takes, uh, so an ion is a, a single atom with one electron removed so that it's charged. So what you do is you take a single ion and you load it into the trap. So a trap is a combination of electric and magnetic fields that forces the ion to float in empty space. Uh, so you may act- what you will actually have is several of these ions, maybe five or ten in a row. And the reason why you're floating them in empty space is because, remember I said that noise is a massive issue, and you want to isolate mm-hmm. these things from the rest of the world as much as you can. So the actual volume taken up by a single atom is, is tiny, but in order to apply the electric and the magnetic fields to hold it in place, you need a lot of apparatus around it, a lot of strong magnets. And you need to have these fields very, very precisely controlled. And then what you need on top of that is to actually perform the computation. Usually what you do is shine lasers on these. By shining a laser, you're able to manipulate the exact state of electrons inside this ion. And then a laser can be uh, emitted, so this won't be like a simple handheld laser. There'll be a high-power laser, which uh, has a very, very exact frequency and um, a single laser could maybe be, uh, well, it would be quite heavy on your desk. itself <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, <absolutely. laughs> there are various mirrors and uh, beam splitters and things that uh, ensure that the laser goes to the right place inside the, the ion trap. So again, it's all of this periphery equipment that takes up the space. And uh, I've seen labs that have trapped ions where the amount of laser equipment that they have takes up a room that is uh, maybe ten meters by five meters.
1: Oh wow! So
0: that's, it doesn't take all all of the room up. That's the. It's usually all are aligned on a kind of two-dimensional table, right? So you don't go mm-hmm. up in the room. Although maybe that's one way that we can uh, improve things to miniaturise. So one of the things that we're progressing towards at the moment, one of the big uh, innovations, that has bounce is that people have started trying to work with using microwaves instead. So when I say a laser, what I usually mean is a laser which is emitting light within either the optical, the visible frequencies, or ultraviolet or something that's near visible. Uh, whereas microwave frequencies are also, can also be used to control these uh, trapped ions. But the good thing about microwave frequencies is that the lasers are a lot cheaper. And they don't, they don't tend to be so large and so bulky, and they're a lot cheaper. So at the moment, one of the things people are working on is trying to see if we can build trapped-iron quantum computers using uh, microwaves instead of lasers as much as possible. That's certainly one of the things that's being pursued in the Oxford uh, led hub in the UK towards quantum computing.
1: I mean, it's a hard question, obviously, to answer, but, I mean, how far off do you think we are from that?
0: From from large-scale quantum computing? Mm Mm-hmm. There are are different milestones where you might see something interesting. So, at the moment, we're looking at 5 to 14 qubits, and that's uninteresting in the sense that my laptop can simulate a quantum system up to 20 qubits. So, anything below 20 is definitely... Now, good to have the prototype to proof of principle, but it's, it's not doing anything that I can do on my laptop. So there's definitely a lot of hope that within the next decade, we'll go well past that 20 qubits. So then we'll be probing a regime where we can't copy what the system is doing with our, our laptop, so that's when things become, first become really, really, really interesting. But still 20, 30, 40 qubits is not enough for any major commercial applications. And it's not enough also because when we start doing quantum error correction and other ideas like that, then really we get pushed towards needing something that's maybe thousands or even millions of qubits. That's where you start getting the really world-shatteringly important applications. So how far off uh, is is that goal of um, thousands or millions of qubits? you ask different people, they tell you different things. So I know many people will say 10, 20 years. I personally don't like to put a a timescale on it because it depends so much on politics and sociology. Right. So 10 years ago, when I was doing my PhD, it felt like there was a big push towards making quantum computing happening. And then there was the the world financial crisis. Mm -hmm. One of the easy things, governments to cut his funding to universities. And lots of the programs for uh, developing quantum technologies, well they didn't get cut but they didn't get renewed because normally funding is given on say five or ten year cycles. And so lots of programs that didn't get renewed and, the, and all of the momentum that was built up was lost. But in the last two or three years government funded um, not just government-funded programs, but also Google, Microsoft, Intel, IBM—they've all started hiring many, many people and building much, much larger groups pushing towards this. So there's definitely some momentum, which is essential. Then also, there are even if you have momentum and a lot of resource towards it, there's the sociological question because if I can make a contrast with CERN and the LHC again, so CERN was a large global collaboration among scientists, and its goal was to learn about things like the Higgs boson and, so, and such what, which uh, the public were very keen to, to know about and uh, was kind of a priority for many governments for us to learn about these, these fundamental aspects of nature. But it wasn't necessarily going to be a product at the end of it, so it didn't really matter who built then or, you know, which different countries, as long as it got built, it didn't matter. But with quantum computing, it's slightly different because, you know, a company or a government or a defense agency, they want a quantum computer. They don't necessarily want their competitors to have a quantum computer. So compared to maybe other areas, there might be more competition than there is. uh, Yeah, compared to other areas, there might be more competition and less collaboration. And I think that it's such a challenge that we really need to be working together as much as possible in order to uh, overcome all of the obstacles and and get this thing working. But of course, there are are various vested interests that somehow uh, slow down progress, I would say.
1: Well, this has been some fascinating information. I really appreciate you giving me all of your time here today. Is there any final thoughts that you could add or give to our listeners in terms of just sort of what's on the horizon for you and what's on the horizon for quantum, excuse me, quantum computing at the University of Sheffield.
0: Well, for me, I'm really kind of focusing at the moment on expanding my group and doing work, and also building more connections and links with industry, and kind of pushing towards this you know, longer-term um, close connection between academia and industry because that's what we're really going to need, not one of these kind of short five-year handover periods where academics teach people in industry how to, how to do what they need to do in order to develop a product, but uh, a long program of collaborative work. And I think that's the direction that I personally am going. Um, other thoughts? So maybe one thought that I'd like to share is that there's one quite fascinating thing about, that has emerged as we've uh, studied quantum information theory and quantum technologies from a, from a theory perspective. And that's this idea of information as a, as a resource. This crops up time and again inside different quantum technologies. So I think your listeners might be familiar with the idea of one-time pads and standard cryptographic ideas. I've seen various of the other podcasts have dealt with things like blockchains. So a one-time pad is basically a list of zeros and ones, which you've obtained securely and shared with someone else. And this is a resource because if you use it to encode a message and then dispose of um, your one-time pads, then your message will be completely secure. But you have to throw away this list of zeros and ones in order to make the message secure. Now what we find in Quantum technologies is that there are kind of new and strange notions of resource. So one that's quite well known is this idea of entanglement. So entanglement is a lot like this thing that I described earlier called superposition, but it's where two quantum systems that are very, very far apart are in a superposition of different states that means that you can't think of them as having uh, a well-defined local state and it's quite a mind-bending thing to get your head around, but this is the resource which you uh, produce and then also consume when you want to share what are called quantum keys, when you form quantum key distribution. And in quantum computing, there, there are other kinds of notions of quantum uh, information-theoretic resources, and one of these is literally called magic. So this this kind of, quite hard to get your head around uh, information-theoretic notion of magic is the thing that gives you a quantum speeder. So we know that if you have a quantum computer at no point does it possess this property of containing magic, then you could simulate it with a normal computer. But, and the more magic that it has, the harder and harder it becomes for a classical computer to simulate it. So that's just kind of one of the strange, weird things of quantum physics that maybe is uh, nice to end the interview on.
1: Well, I, I truly appreciate your time, Earl, in, in allowing me to pick your brain. Earl Campbell, a theoretical physicist at the University of Sheffield, has given us his time today. And, Earl, we look forward to seeing what both you and any of our physicists and things of that nature are going to put together for quantum computing it's a, a fascinating area it's a lot to take in and wrap your head around like we've said um but I, I am very excited to see what comes
0: you've been listening to almost here around the corner future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs subscribe to this podcast post to review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse